over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books, all of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. Well, welcome again to Michael Easley in Context. It's a delight to have on the broadcast today Dr. Ken Boa. Uh, Dr. Boa is engaged in an interesting ministry, relational evangelism and discipleship. He is also a teacher, an author, and a conference speaker. He has authored 60 books and counting. He's the president of Reflections Ministries and Trinity House Publishers and resides in the Atlanta, Great Peach State, Georgia area. And uh, we both had the privilege of going to Dallas Seminary. I've been a student of Dr. Boa through his books, two in particular, uh, Talk Through the Bible and his handbook, to prayer are on my shelf and well-worn and duct-taped together. So, Ken, thanks for coming on the broadcast. I'm delighted to be with you. We are doing a series at Stonebridge Bible Church called The Big Book, Cover to Cover, where we are attempting to go through each book of the Bible every Sunday. So in doing this, in tandem with this, I have encouraged our congregation to use the handbook to prayer as well as talk through the Bible, both which uh, Ken has authored. So first of all, let me ask you the question. When did you get the idea, Ken, to put together the Talk Through the Bible series? Oh, as to the Talk Through the Bible, I came to Atlanta initially in 1979. They were actually going to create a graduate school here in Atlanta. Most people now don't know this, but they were going to be given the Biltmore Hotel. But when I got here, a few months after that, uh, the decision was made not to proceed in that direction. So I was with Walk Through the Bible from 79 to 82, and during that time, I wrote a few books, uh, among other things. And um, one of those, two of those books were Talk Through the Old Testament and Talk Through the New Testament. And um, then they were later um, embellished upon and added to and then became a kind of a co-authorship with Bruce Wilkinson. But my whole idea is, is there a way in which I could synthesize each of the books of the Bible in such a way that people could use this uh, book, which has really been a textbook for many people, um, to get the big picture about the, the theme, the purpose, the history, the background, just to get the, uh, the, the, the bird's eye view and the nutshell of the whole. And so that's been, that was a, a good journey for me to take. And then subsequent to that, I also have turned these into a series of visual presentations for each of the books of the Bible, each of the components as well. So it's a whole array of materials we've now crafted for this. And I cannot uh, recommend highly enough to our listeners, um, we'll have the information in the show notes, how you can find out more about Reflections Ministry and the Trinity House Publishers and how you can access these materials. If you're a, a Sunday school teacher or a curriculum, a person who looks for curriculum for your church, you need to check out some of the uh, uh, offerings that Ken has put together. Um, let's talk about Joseph. Talk about a hard right turn. Let's talk about Joseph. Okay. Um, you, you have... Uh, 
either in recent studies or in uh, your personal devotion, you've taken on some new interest in the life of Joseph. Sure. So basically, uh, in walking through the book of Genesis, you obviously pull out various motifs and modalities, and one of those themes that you see, of course, is the increasingly uh, uh, narrowed focus as we move down through the generations and go from Abraham to Isaac and then to Jacob and then to Joseph. And as we know, um, as those uh, generations proceed, they get further and further away from the intimacy with God such that the by the fourth generation, apart from Joseph, uh, the, the, they would clearly have, if they had remained in the land of Canaan, they would have been intermarried with the Canaanites and would have lost their national identity. So effectively, God's preparing a way to bring them out of that compromised uh, context and bring them into a place where they would actually be in a kind of a, an actual womb, as it were, where 70 people would go into that womb, which would be the nation of Egypt, and after 430 years, there would be, in fact, about two, two to two and a half million who'd, who would leave. So Egypt really was like a womb that gave birth to the nation of, of Egypt. And because the Egyptians would have nothing to do with the, the Hebrews, that meant that they would have their purity and their focus. And so God actually put them in that context, even though it involved affliction and, and oppression. Nevertheless, it forged and, and prepared a people for his own uh, purposes. And so then the effective dynamic of their being birthed, as it were, uh, the kind of a, the birth of, of through the exodus, through water, as it were, and also by blood because of the Passover and the, and the signs and wonders, you see a, a, a huge buildup to this. But before that period of time, though, we get to, to Joseph. And when we get to the, that fourth generation of Joseph, then, as we well know, God prepares them in this manner by actually uh, allowing this whole process to, have, to take place with his brothers, where at the end in Genesis 50, 20, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to preserve a people for himself, because then ultimately, as we well know the story, the famine, the famine comes in, and Joseph uses this position uh, in a profound manner to deliver his brothers. But at the same time, you also see an increasing focus on Judah, and ultimately, it'll be through Judah that the uh, kings will come, not Joseph. And so that's an interesting motif, as you see in the Joseph narrative, uh, the building up of Judah himself as one who will be a deliverer, for, uh, a kind of a savior, who in fact saved, tried to save Joseph and then later tries to save Benjamin. So it's an intriguing series of motifs that God shows that he's using behind the scenes to prepare people for himself. We often appeal to these passages we know really well, and you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Uh, I'm curious, um, in your study, how long do you think it took Joseph before he could really embrace and articulate that? Good question. Uh, best estimates, he was about 17 when he went into uh, captivity into Potiphar's uh, house, as you know, and then immediately everything flourishes, as you know. And then, uh, of course, it didn't take long, uh, long, however, for Potiphar's wife, who wasn't exactly subtle, uh, who kept on saying, come lie with me. And finally, uh, she has her opportunity. And uh, he's then unjustly once again thrown into this uh, dilemma of prison. And yet again, when he's thrown into prison, he's then um, 
going to be one who was entrusted with stewardship. So everywhere he went, something amazing took place. My suspicion is that Potiphar's wife didn't take long to, to pull this stunt when she was rejected because of her being spurned. She then turns on him and accuses him, of course, of attempted, attempted rape. He's thrown in there. So my suspicion is it was probably within a year, maybe two, three, uh, before he was actually imprisoned. And if that's true, and it, we know that he was 30 years old when he appeared before Pharaoh, then we're talking about an awful long time, uh, maybe about a dozen years uh, actually in prison. So this is a huge amount of time, and he was given these dreams, as we well know, and these narratives uh, about ultimately that his father and his mother, that, that, they would, that his family, his brothers would bow down and, and serve him. And I'm confident that Jacob, that Joseph rather, constantly pondered the meaning of those profound dreams, those profound truths, reflected upon this. And when his brothers do eventually appear and when he recognizes them, they, of course, don't know him, there, I think, is nothing about any measure of resentment or revenge, but rather his desire is to bring them to the point of repentance and then restitution and restoration, as I see his working behind the scenes uh, with them. So I, I, I detect nothing of the kind of bitterness that often might prevail when a person fails to embrace or because of the uh, adversities of life when he fails to embrace the purposes of God in a context in which he cannot grasp why it's happening and taking so long. But we, we can see that, of course, you know, at the end, and that's supposed to say it's a happily ever after in, in so many respects, but let's say conservatively 12 years of prison. But, I mean, the way they mistreated him, the way they, you know, essentially stripped him of his long-sleeved tunic, the way they mock him, uh, and, and, you know, it, it, let's let's say he was a remarkable teen who understood those dreams in ways that we can't measure, even at that, there would be those periods of doubt and fear and wonder and where are you, God? Not recorded, argument from silence. But I'm, I'm just curious. We look back on, on Moses' life and how he feels at the end, and we read Psalm 90, and to me there's an ache in the patriarch's voice. You know, does my life have meaning? Sure. Uh, and I just got to wonder, because I think the happily ever after seems to be, uh, and, and then you hear it glibly applied to people who go through a divorce or cancer or lose a child, and you want to you know, give them a, as my friend Dave Gibson says, you want to give them a spiritual dope slap. <laughs> you know, don't quote those verses, that cavalier. You know, Think through this, and it just seems, I mean, again, you're, you're the expert on this more than me, but it just seems... It's not recorded, and then intriguingly, at the end, he wants his bones back in Israel. Uh -huh. He doesn't want to be buried in Egypt. Right. So, and, that, and ironically, that's the thing for which he is, he is actually included. Uh, the main thing that he's included for in the Hall of uh, Faith in Hebrews 11 that he, yep. that he gave orders concerning his bones. But the whole point, of course, is that just as his father before him. 
he also says, "I don't want. I want my bones to be buried in that cave of Machpelah." So, in other words, his identification with the promises of God and the purposes that and were entailed and involved in the Abrahamic covenant of the land. The land was key. Yes, this land is key. So you have the land, and he understood that there would be a seed, and ultimately we see that seed being prepared, really ultimately through Judah, but we also see the blessing that there would be, and that there is indeed already the intimation of a blessing, even in every place that he went with Potiphar's house, and then with the Pharaoh, with Pharaoh, and then subsequent to to, to the famine, then he bring he actually does something that's never been done before, where the entire land becomes the pharaohs except for the uh, priests. It's an astonishing thing that he uses because ultimately leveraging the actual uh, the, the famine itself um, and the people then first selling their, their land and then selling their, their livestock and then selling uh, first their goods, their money, then their land, then their livestock, then themselves. So that at the end of the day, when there is great oppression and, and diff- difficulty of this nature, people will either turn to God or they'll turn to government. The fact is, though, that uh, I believe that Joseph clearly was a man of wisdom, and this is one of the things that distinguishes him from others uh, and the, uh, the other patriarchs, because he's more similar to Daniel. And, I, and interestingly enough, both were flourishing in Babylon, effectively, he and Jew, in Egypt, but both. How do you flourish in a context that where you're not in your you're not in Jerusalem anymore? You're you're in a context of adversity in exile. So, as an alien in exile. How did he flourish? As And the same question was, of course, for Daniel. And both were men of wisdom who could interpret dreams, but not only interpret them, but understand them well enough to apply the level of wisdom. So it was not merely a matter of this is what your dream was and, and meant. It was also a matter of now here's what, you, what I think you should do. And indeed, Pharaoh saw this kind of wisdom, and so did Nebuchadnezzar with Daniel. So it's intriguing how there are parallels. Thus, the whole wisdom perspective, as you know, invites us to have the long-term rather than the short-term perspective. So I think that that Joseph clearly had his doubts, clearly wrestled with God, clearly wondered about the timing of the whole process. But by the time he meets his brothers, it's evident that he had really matured enough to where he was not hoping in something God did not promise. At the end of the day, he was hoping in the promises of God, but had no clue as to how they would actually be fulfilled. When you look at your overview of the Bible that you've done so masterfully in so many ways, uh, whether it's the Talk Through the Bible series or the uh, Handbook to Scripture one-year journey book, um, when, you, when you look at Egypt's role, and Joseph obviously is, you know, is God's part of leading this whole, what, what's your take on Egypt versus Israel? What's the underlying uh lesson, tension, God is, you know, I often say that the story of Exodus is redemption from slavery, consecration for worship. Yes. Uh-huh. We, we've got to get you out of literal and metaphorical slavery, yes. slavery to sin, slavery to Egypt. Yeah. And we've got to consecrate you in order to worship. Right. And to do that, we're going to strip away all the props. You're going to have water, manna, and me. Yes. But, but why Egypt, Ken? Yeah. Egypt is intriguing because there's a unique relationship with Egypt insofar as Egypt, as I said, was the womb that gave birth to the nation of, of, of Israel. And right. as a consequence, there is a special provision and, uh, and uh, acknowledgement of Egypt in the, in the purposes and uh, plans of God. 
So here you have as well, though, the whole dynamic of, uh, of a nation who, not because it chooses to do, to do so, but because God raises up a nation to become that per- to, for his actual purposes. And you recall that um, Abraham was told centuries before all of this that you know and, and understand that your descendants will be, for 400 years, they're going to be Captives. in yep. And so you understand you're going to be there for this purpose. It was not a surprise. So that has to also be taken into account. This was not something of which they were ignorant. This is something that was being conveyed to, conveyed and communicated. So I think that they had a more robust grasp of those things than we might sometimes suppose. But still, this whole motif of wisdom is so critical because Joseph's wisdom then enabled him to get the long-term perspective. Uh, Speaking of wisdom, um, I have greatly benefited uh, from these th- these three points in a wonderful sermon by Jonathan Edwards that he delivered when he was only 18 years old, and it relates precisely to some of the good questions you're raising. His first point effectively was this, that our bad things will turn out for good. Of course, you're thinking of Romans 8.28 and such texts of that sort. Secondly, our good things will never be taken away from us. And then the third is that the best is yet to come. Mm. If you embrace that, that would cause you to have a more eternal perspective on the temporal arena, and that's really what's involved in suffering, affliction, and adversity. Indeed, I have a book coming out in uh, early next year called Shaped by Suffering, and it touches very much on the Joseph story, among other things. So it's a huge issue because my now, my, now my conviction is that the qualities and characteristics of great men like Joseph and Daniel are never achieved in times of, of ease, but always in adversity. We learn more from our setbacks and our successes, and so it's through these adversities that they actually shape and forge the characteristics of humility, of patience, of courage, of perseverance, of integrity that we admire in people, but those are never virtues that are forged in times of ease. Repeat those three again. Those are so good. Yeah. Imagine a man of 18 being able to have this wisdom beyond his years. Uh, first of all, he, the, net, the net of his sermon was that our, our, good, our bad things will turn out for good. What we construe to be bad, God has a bigger plan, precisely according, along the lines of Genesis 50-20. Then secondly, our good things can never be taken away from us. So there's no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus and other texts. And then third, the best is yet to come. I hasn't seen or ear heard nor even entered into the heart of man all that God's prepared for those who love him. So in other words, with, uh, with that mindset then, that, that, then that's a mindset of an overcomer, not a person who's unrealistic, one who has a realistic grasp. And I really resonate with what you said earlier. One of the dumbest things we, we do and the many of the stupidest things we say are in, at funerals and at times when people are going through adversity and we try to make it easier for them. No, that's not the way to do that. It is to uh, commiserate and uh, empathize with the person, but not come up with platitudes and bromides. It's, it's yeah, nothing infuriates me more as a pastor to walk into a funeral home or a hospital room and some Christian is saying some you know, well-intentioned, I don't want to be unkind, but they, they say the dumbest thing, and you just want to take them out by the shirt collar and say, just don't say anything. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I still remember this when my wife, uh, Karen, uh, um, should have died when she was uh, in an accident on the Stemmons Freeway in Dallas. And all the bromides and platitudes that she endured, mostly at Romans 8.28, all well-intentioned, but after a while it just weary, became wearisome. 
Um, I just lost a dear friend of mine I've known for for decades, and in talking with his widow, I'm not going to be trying to say all things work together. I'm going to be being there for her. I'm going to be an agent of grace. I'm going to be one who listens and empathizes. Yeah, it's horrible. It's sad. It's tragic. Our hearts are broken. We sit and... You know, we need Job's friends who sat for seven days and then just stopped there. <laughs> right. <laughs> then they were being friends. <laughs> yeah, they were great till that point, and they opened their mouth. But, yeah, anyway, um, well, it's interesting because, um, and I think maybe as you and I get older in these decades of our lives, we view life much differently. We're, we're able to view, you know, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good, and yet— there seems to be no shortcut to learning that. No, there is no shortcut as I see it. Um, it's it's hard learned. I mean, yes, there's a combination of two things as I see it. One is you're going to uh, is is the, the wisdom of proverbs. Let's 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 sit on the shoulders of giants and learn from the past. And so that's the process of learn and live. But there is also inevitably the school of hard knocks of live and learn. And there's no bypassing that second school so that that's the the wisdom that is requires great great length of years and perspective and so forth um so when we make good decisions as as it's been described good decisions are based based on experience and most of that's based on bad bad decisions (laughs) will rogers yeah right exactly right so if you learn from your decisions, that is where per- wisdom perspective comes through. You know, it's interesting, and uh, I know it's different around the culture, but we were talking here in the studio about what I call the I, me, my mm. Christianity, that it's horizontal now. It's what I, me, my, my vision, my passion, my marriage, my children, my, my food, my dieting, my lifestyle. Yes. And and it uh, you know as uh, my oldest daughter who is the executive director of the ministry often reminds me, Dad, you just can't complain about it. You got to help people. <laughs> <laughs> but it it is a unique challenge because um, we we live in a different culture than we did thirty years ago, and what's a value today is I me my. Uh, you know, suffering is not a value. Uh, avoidance of suffering, pleasure is of value, instant gratification is of value, uh, the church meeting my needs is of value. That's right. So God becomes then a cosmic v- vending machine, mm-hmm. utility, that uh, then the, the supposition, that p- and people really love to hear this, is if you put the right coins in and push the right buttons, this will be the outcome. Yeah. And th- you, that didn't work? My <laughs> <laughs> check. I, I call it if-then theology, yeah. If I do this, then God will do that. Yeah, then. So it's amazing to me, though. So people um, avoid the whole issue of suffering, and that's why I felt this book is so necessary, because it's the third part of a temporal versus the eternal trilogy. The first one was rewriting your broken story. And, of course, the question is, how do you fix a broken story? The only way you can fix a broken story is to embed our stories in the greatest story ever told. And that's indeed, I think, what wisdom and vice is to do. And I think that's what Joseph and Daniel, uh, based upon the knowledge they had at that time and in progressive revelation, were embedded 
embedding their story in that great story, and that's why they wanted to. That's why Joseph gave those instructions concerning his burial. So uh, that that is um, a wise thing to do. But the second book was then if okay for if there's a power of an internal perspective, then how do you have, how do you cultivate it? And that's that uh, was a book called uh, Life in the Presence of God, and that are practices of for living in light of eternity. And then the third one is Shaped by Suffering. Then uh, and that has to do with um, how temporal hardships are preparing us for our eternal home. I finished teaching through First uh, Peter a couple years ago, and and somewhere during that, uh, I I started using this line: "Where did we ever get the idea life was going to turn out a certain way?" There you go. There you go. And, and indeed, this book that I just mentioned yep. is inspired by a teaching I did, a series I did on First Peter. So it's exactly right. So I like to put it this way: God redeems what He allows. Hmm. Hard for us to embrace that. I, you know, I, I have uh, we have mutual friends, Johnny Erickson Tata. Uh, Johnny, I, I always when I talk to her, I say I feel like I have a hangnail when I'm complaining to you. You know, <laughs> that's a good way to. Put and it. and <laughs> it's just it's such a ridiculous way. But but then I also tell people that come to me because I live with chronic pain, and they say I don't know how you do it, and I go, there's no contest or comparison when it comes to pain. No. Your, your pain is your reality, yep. and, and if it's a constant distraction, it needs to be addressed. Yes. And it's not like, you know, because Johnny is in such worse shape than Michael, it should ease my pain. Um, but I, I think the Christian community is loath to embrace the idea, you're going to suffer, and you better strap on. So this is, this is why they can't receive the real messages in these stories, these biblical stories, because all those stories entail a great deal of adversity, a great deal of waiting. Consider the 400 years in, in Egypt. Consider the 400 years in which after uh, the last of the prophets, Malachi, then there's a prophetic silence. And where is God? Where are his promises? Where did this happen? Consider the 70 years in Babylonian captivity. All these motifs then, waiting, waiting, waiting. And, and to interrupt, the expectation that those elders were teaching those their children and grandchildren these very stories that they did not know yes because all those people died yes so they received and we know they died how in faith without receiving the, the promises yeah but i mean you talk, you 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 rattle off 430 years we go whoa 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 america's 200 and what 33 this year we know nothing no and we we have the, the supposition that we'll be immune to all other to what happened to every other generation and all other times. Frankly, we have enjoyed far un, un, unprecedented dimensions of privilege, um, and yet we, we are a greater level of whiners in our country that it strikes me than we ever had before. It's another discussion. But the point is that we need to stop putting confusing. Uh, as Bob Dylan put it, don't go mistaking paradise for that home across the road. Yeah. So you want to stop looking at because the more we have of this world's good, the more we're going to be putting our hope in them. And so Joseph understood this, uh, and and so did uh, Jacob ultimately, and more forced to understand it than he wanted to be. But nevertheless, he was forced, and by the end, he grasped this this wisdom, this hard-earned wisdom that is often achieved through the severe mercies of God. Yeah, my my axiom is this life at best is a clean bus station. That's a very nice way to. Yeah, and no matter how nice or new the bus station is, it still stinks. 
<laughs> yeah, it's there's just no no thing as a nice bus station, and yet we're trying to make you know yeah Earth heaven, and we can't quite get there. We can't can't do it, and so again, you know, I I realize how the brief the brevity of the earthbound sojourn. So you know, uh, it's it's the best you're living out of suitcases in this world. Yes. So you're in a you're in a hotel room. If okay, I don't need to change the decor of the hotel room. I'm in a hotel room. So while we have no memories of heaven, we can we do have hints of home those mm. moments and and shafts piercing shafts of beauty intimacy and adventure mm. those piercing shafts point to, to something that as c.s lewis described the patches of god light on the woodlands of our experience where somehow that you can't see the sun but the rays are there in the and through the um, leaf canopy and there they are these shafts and love it it's not the thing themselves, because it's not those experiences, but they are pointers, um, what Lewis calls Zainzuk longing, that point beyond themselves mm. to a good that, it's not that, but it's a greater good you cannot yet name. And that's why confident assurance of things hoped for with the conviction of things, of things not yet seen. Yeah, it's a hard one. Just think of that one for a moment. Oh. Consider how radical that is. Consider the profound risk of... of, of pursuing the unseen over the seen and the not yet over the now. I know. I, I, I use that passage. In fact, I take. I wear glasses, and I take my glasses off physically when I quote that verse, <laughs> and I put my hand over my eyes with mm-hmm. confident assurance of things not yeah. yet seen. Yeah. And uh, to me, a no finer explanation for any of us, whether you're facing surgery or your wife has dementia or your child has broken your heart or, 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 and yet it's such a it's a strange antinomy to live by faith, quote, do our part. Eh, what does that mean? That you know, mm-hmm. it, to be faithful and live faithfully, knowing the outcome is his. And I might be on that 430 year, you know, wandering. That's uh, right. You know, enslavement. So no matter what, I don't care how much you have of this world's good, it's, it, we're impoverished, and we're not home yet. And so our mission really is to transmute the lead of that which is passing away into the gold of that which will endure. So the things that are passing away then are really uh, are things that are, can be, though, leveraged for gain. So I love the Lucan idea in Luke 16, make, therefore makes friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness so that when it fails, and of course that's when you die, uh, they, they'll be there to receive you into the eternal dwelling. So what's, what's a better way to do it than that way? Live in light of, the, of home, and the more I crave eternity, the less I'll crave the temporal. Things of the earth go strangely dim. Okay, Dr. Ken Boa, help help the the doctor, the lawyer, the homemaker, the single mom or dad, the one who's going through the divorce, um, the the teenager who's disillusioned and you know questioning his or her gender. Uh, help help them with some thoughts on why this big book, cover to cover, is worth their time. As I see it, this this great book, um, which is a unique unity and diversity is a love letter from the one who made the cosmos. So I, I'm, I was an astronomer, and I'm, so as a scientist, I still love what I see in the midi-cosm, the microcosm, and the, maxi, the, the macrocosm, and I'm astonished at the, the beauty and diversity. But what I could not know from the heavens and the earth and all that I see 
is that the maker and, uh, and the, uh, who, who made this, I can learn about his eternal power and divine nature, but I could never have imagined that the one who holds the galaxies together is the lover of our souls. And more than that would actually underwrite the cost of our redemption in his own blood. The concept of, of taking humanity into himself with undiminished deity, the concept of taking on our sins and giving us his righteousness. These are concepts that, by the way, are utterly and completely unique in the Christian faith so that at the end of the day, the question is going to be, what are you putting your hope in? Because if you're putting your hope in anything other than the promises of God, then you're setting yourself up for despair, bitterness, and disappointment in the end. Dr. Ken Boa, president of Reflections Ministry and Trinity House Publishers, author of 60 Books and Counting. Ken, thanks so much for your time. We have to get you back on the podcast in the not-too-distant future. I would enjoy that. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded from donations by our listeners. If you're a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation on our website? You can find us on michaelincontext.com. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters. Blair Masters.